Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. My name's Dan, if I haven't met you yet. Thanks for being here. If you have a Bible with you, please open up with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. And we should mention that Julie's retirement has been planned for a long time. It's uh, over a year she's been planning this, and so it was not in response to anything else, just so you know. But I was thinking back, you know, when I... Uh, when I was candidating here, Julie, I don't know, I think it was January or March, I can't remember, it was 13 years ago, but uh, Julie was one of the first people I met, and she was, one of the, she was one of the main reasons I wanted to come to this church to work with her. It's true. She was, she was awesome. She took us to see Camino Island State Park for the first time, and we'd never seen so much green in our lives come from Wyoming, um, but uh, so thankful that uh, she continues to plan to serve and be around. And, but uh, we thank you, Julie and Mike, for all the sacrifices you've made for our church and served here so faithfully for so long. Amen. Well, as I was preparing my sermon for this week, I thought about a hero of mine who is uh, Cindy's grandpa. Yeah, who we call Grandpa Brian. We have a picture of him. There's Grandpa Brian and Grandma Marilyn there, and that's Cindy and Jackson when he's just a little bit younger. Um, after managing a Woolworth store for a decade, Grandpa Brian worked for 20 years as a school district bus mechanic. He always made sure his family was involved in a local church. And I appreciate that in all my interactions with him, he's always spoken well of his pastors, even when he had disagreements with them. And, and now in his retirement, Grandpa Brian uh, volunteers 50 hours a week, running one of the largest food pantries in North Denver. And uh, our Cedar Home Youth Group actually served with him a few years ago on one of our mission trips to Denver. Uh, but one of the things that I and most inspired about by Grandpa Brian is the way that he loved and served his wife of 58 years, Marilyn. Years back when Marilyn was diagnosed with cancer, Grandpa Brian took care of her until thankfully her cancer went away. And a few years later, her cancer came back. And this time she needed to have major surgery and Brian was right by her side, serving her, praying with her, just like he had before. And thankfully, her cancer went away again. Years after that, Marilyn had more health issues and experienced kidney failure. And thankfully, she got a kidney replacement, but a few years after that, her new kidney failed. And so the doctor said she would need to get intense dialysis five days a week for five hours a day. And so Brian, took medical classes to learn how to become her nurse. And he learned how to insert a needle, how to keep an eye on her blood levels, how to give her the care she needed at home. And so for several years, Grandpa Brian served as her nurse at home, sitting with her five days a week, five hours a day, talking with her and administrating, or excuse me, administering her dialysis for her. And And when I talked to Grandpa Brian on the phone this week, he said that those five hours of dialysis every day were not a chore, but they were a blessing to him. And he's so thankful the Lord gave him those five hours, five days a week to grow closer to his wife and to serve her. And then as Grandma Marilyn grew older and weaker, Grandpa Brian gladly took over more of the house chores like cleaning and buying groceries and running errands. 
And a few years ago now, Marilyn, uh, Marilyn passed away. Uh, but I'm so thankful that before that, she and Grandpa Brian got to fly up to Stanwood and visit us and to visit our family. And as I think back about my time and interactions with them, one of the things that stands out to me most <clears throat> is that even after all of the tragedies and all of the hardships that they had faced together throughout the course of their marriage, they were still so joyful, okay? And that is because, I believe, each of them loved Jesus most. And out of the overflow of their love for Jesus, they served one another, and they sacrificed for one another gladly. Marriages thrive when each spouse loves Jesus most. Families thrive when each parent loves Jesus most. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in today's passage. Let's read Ephesians 5, 18 to 33. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's the word of the Lord. So here in chapter five, Paul has been teaching us how to walk as followers of God, right? Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom is what we've been talking about the past several weeks. And, and then suddenly now, though, he begins to talk about marriage. So why does he do that? Because our marriages and our families are the foundational relationships in which we must first walk in love and light and wisdom. The institute of marriage is the first crucial relationship between humans that shapes the fabric of a society. And then from a man and woman come children, if that's God's will, and a family is made. And then families form neighborhoods and churches and towns. So if you want to nurture neighborhoods, if you want to nurture churches and towns, then you must nurture families. And if you want to nurture families, then you must nurture marriages. 
Because where marriages and families are not nurtured, but neglected and left broken, then always society falls apart at the seams. So in today's passage, Paul takes all that we've learned thus far in Ephesians and and now he applies them specifically to marriage. And in verses 22 to 23, Paul teaches about marriage in three ways. First, Paul counters the culture. Second, Paul counters the curse. And third, Paul connects marriage to Christ and the church. So let's look at each one of those one at a time. First, Paul counters the culture. Paul originally wrote this letter to Christians in Ephesus, Greece in the year 62 AD. And as much as many people in our society think or like to think that we as humans have progressed morally in 2,000 years, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is proof that we haven't. And all you have to do is look back 2,000 years before Paul and see that it was the same in their day too. But just like every culture around the world in 2020, the culture of Ephesus in 62 AD was plagued by warped views of sexuality, of gender, and of marriage. And the motto of Ephesus was just like the motto of our culture, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, do whatever makes you happy with whomever you please. Now, keep this in mind when we're thinking about the, the, this letter to the Ephesians that the majority of Paul's audience who were newer believers came from a non-Christian background, a non-Jewish background, a pagan background, okay? They did not grow up in a, with a foundation or in a, a world with Judeo-Christian values, And so Paul is telling them here, and he's telling us that what many of you have been taught and have had modeled about sexuality and gender and marriage is wrong. You've been taught that God allows humans to define sexuality and gender and marriage, but that is not true. God is the one who created it. He's the creator of your sexuality and of your gender and of the institute of marriage. And not only that, but he wants to bless you through these things. The Lord wants to bless you by teaching you how to use these aspects of humanity according to his plan. See, following God's created order and plan in whatever sphere that is, is always the pathway to maximum blessing, always. And so, Following God's created order and plan is the way to see marriages and families and society flourish. And in scripture, God shows us that his plan for marriage is orderly, it is intentional, and he says that it is very good. Those are the words he uses to describe it. God begins the Bible. Think about how scripture is started in the first two chapters. He begins by creating and defining humanity and gender and sexuality and marriage. So what that means is that these things cannot be defined differently depending on where and when you live because God already defined these things before there were different times and places to live. See that? So it's cross-cultural and it's cross-time. And in the first two chapters of the Bible, we learn that God created humans as the crown jewel of his creation. He made humans alone in his image 
as his unique image bearers to the world, to one another, and to the cosmos as we image forth, reflect his glory. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we learn that God created two genders, male and female. Men and women are perfectly equal in value and dignity, and they have different essential roles in marriage and in family. In the first two chapters of the Bible, we learn that God created marriage to be a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. In marriage, the man becomes the head of the wife, and the woman becomes his helpmate. And in the first two chapters of the Bible, we learn that God created sex only to be between a married couple as they become one flesh. So much of this may have been news to Paul's original audience. And much of this might be news to you too, depending on your background. But what Paul's doing here is he's helping us form a Christian worldview. He's helping us understand and view our world according to God's design for it, according to the way that the Lord has revealed it to function according to scripture. And, and when we see God's plan for marriage and sexuality, obviously, and, and when we compare that to our world's plan for marriage and sexuality, we see they don't line up, right? They butt heads. And so as Paul is filled with the spirit here, as he's writing the words of God here, he is first countering the culture. He's swimming against the current of his culture. And instead, Paul is teaching us by the Spirit the kind of culture that God designed and the kind of culture that God desires for us and the kind of culture that exists in his kingdom. So Paul's countering the culture. Second, Paul counters the curse, the curse of sin. So after God created and defined humanity and gender and sexuality and marriage in the first two chapters of the Bible, it only took one more chapter for us to mess it all up, right? So instead of submitting to God and to his good plan, his good design, which he called very good, we chose to not follow that plan and to disobey and to rebel, to do what we thought was fit in our own eyes. And God allowed us to do that. He allowed us to disobey him, which is called sin. But with that came punishment and penalty because God is the perfect good judge. But the punishment and penalty for our rebellion against the Lord was far more serious and comprehensive than we could have imagined. And so by submitting ourselves to sin and saying we want sin to be our master, not God, we came under this curse of sin and As a result, every part of our humanity, every part of what it meant to be human became warped by sin. And so what this means is now, as humans made in the image of God, sin marred our ability to reflect the glory of God beautifully to the world and to the cosmos. Uh, As individuals created with a gender, we would now have great difficulty and sometimes fight against the good roles that God created us to have in marriage and family and society. Um, And as individuals now having a perverted sexuality, we would be naturally inclined to use our sexual relations outside of marriage. That would be our new hardwiredness, right? Now, 
in Genesis 3, 16 to 17, we read how the curse of sin would now plague marriages. Let's just read it. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, especially pertinent here to to today's passage and to understanding today's passage is what God tells Eve in the second part of Genesis 3.16. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So here God is saying that because of sin, both husband and wife are going to struggle against God's design for them and for their marriage. So now both husband and wife are going to have to fight against this new sin nature in order to serve the role that God originally designed for each of them, which he originally called very good. And specifically here in, in verse 16, God says that the wife's desire will now be contrary to her husband. In other words, because of sin, every wife will now struggle against her husband. She will desire to be the head of the marriage and the family, even though God said he created her to be the helpmate. And at the same time, because of sin, every husband will now struggle against the leadership role God gave him as the head of the wife and family. The husband will struggle with being a bad leader of his wife and family. Because of sin, the husband's new natural sinful inclination will to be selfish and to be a ruler, domineering, instead of self-sacrificing and servant-hearted. So the husband's new inclination will be just like his first father, Adam, who did not take leadership in the garden when he was tempted by Satan, but instead submitted to Satan and led his wife astray by his own foolishness and cowardice. So in Ephesians 5, what is Paul doing? He wants us to return to God's created order and design for marriage that God originally called very good. And so Paul spends three and a half verses teaching the wives and he spends eight and a half verses teaching the men, the husbands, because apparently we need more instruction, okay? So Paul writes in verses 22 to 24, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In order to read um, these verses as a very good thing, it is very important to read them in the context of all of Paul's writings, not to take this out of context, to read it in the context of Jesus' ministry and all of scripture. Listen, neither Paul nor Jesus were chauvinistic, okay? Neither of them wanted to see women mistreated, abused, or oppressed. Rather, scripture in its entirety shows that God's desire is always to elevate women, to protect women, and to free them to live into the very good role he gave them at creation. Women here, note, are not 
instructed to submit to all men. It's not what he says. This passage is specifically describing marriage. Wives are specifically instructed to submit to their own husband and to do that in all areas of life, okay? So we read here is that God made the husband the head of his wife who are now one flesh and she should submit to him just like the church should submit to Christ who is its head. And as with all submission for all Christians, the wife must not submit to her husband in matters of sin. And the wife must not submit to an abusive husband in his abusiveness, because that is wickedness. That is not what this passage is about. This passage is not a passage to be used by men to dominate their wives. Now, let's step back here and look at the big picture. The whole reason why the wife submits to the husband and why she even desires to do that is to follow the created order of the one she reveres more than her husband, Jesus. See that? Paul said in verse 21 that as followers of Christ, we submit ourselves to God and to those people he tells us to submit to because we revere God. Doesn't that make submitting easier? better what this means is that worshiping God is our motive for submission as Christians get that it's a worship an act of worship now I also want to add here that the wife is not the only person in the marriage who must submit okay husbands you are to submit yourselves to Christ I want wives and husbands to hear this because this is very important You are to submit yourself to Christ, husband. You are to submit yourself to his commands for you, for your behavior in your marriage. You are to submit yourself to governing authorities and to the police. If a husband treats his wife uh, in a way that is against the law, he is accountable to the authorities of the police and she should call the police, okay? Or the elders of the church or whatever. He's accountable for his actions. Husbands, you are to submit yourself, Scripture says, to a local church and to its elders to whom you are accountable. You are not a rogue agent, okay? Thus, these verses do not say that the husband is not accountable for the way that he husbands. In fact, Paul raises the bar here. Paul now spends the rest of the passage telling men how to be the kind of husband that God wants them to be and that their wives want them to be. So verses 25 to 27 say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So the first thing we see here is that husbands love your wives not just by feeling love for her, but by loving her with your actions. Okay? That's what we see here. Christ's love for his church is not just a feeling love, which it is, but his is a love that proved itself by giving up everything for the sake of his bride. Think about that. Like, I've had all week to meditate on this verse, and it just hit me this morning like, I think sometimes we just read over this verse as as men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
and we just pass over it because the calling is so high we cannot even begin to fathom that. But I'm like, think about that. God's command to you husbands is to love your wife the way that Jesus loved the church and still does. Christ's love for his church is not just a feeling love, it is a serving love, it is a nurturing love. Christ shed his, gave his life, he shed his blood, he suffered terribly for his bride and he did this, scripture says, with joy because he loved her so much. And through faith in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for sinners, we read that every member of God's church is sanctified and made holy and without blemish by being forgiven, by being born again, by being reconciled to God. This is how Jesus loved us as his church. And, and we read that when Christ returns, he will, this is what he's gonna do. His bride, his church, he's gonna present us to himself for his everlasting glory and also so that we will be eternally joyful with him. That's the plan. That's what's happening. So what else does this mean for husbands? Well, obviously Christ denied himself for his bride. Husbands, you must deny yourself by the power of the Spirit. Deny your temptations. Fight against your pride, this new curse of sin. Fight against your sinful habits because you want to honor the Lord and because you want to serve your bride and your family. And when you sin against your wife, like unfortunately we often do, we husbands, we need to acknowledge that. We need to ask our wives for forgiveness. If this happens in front of our kids, we need to apologize to our kids. We need to get, we as dads have to set the model of what confession and forgiveness looks like in the home, okay? And then we need to seek to repent of that and not just have it be, I'm sorry I did this again, it's just how I am. It's like, no, repent. <laughs> By the power of the Spirit, Say, Lord, help me. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to follow that trajectory. I want to be like you, Jesus. Husbands, we're the ones who are supposed to set the model. And we get to, and it's a joyful thing. Um, I'm preaching to myself here too, okay? Christ also, what else did he do? It says he nurtured his bride. Right? With, with, and how did he do that? It says with his word, the gospel, the good news. So scripture, but within scripture, the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So husbands, we must learn how to nurture our wives spiritually by speaking the gospel and living out its implications in our marriage and in our families. What does this look like practically? Well, I think if we were going to disciple a couple at a very elementary level, it would begin by having husbands lead their wives in praying together. Um, leading their wives in reading scripture together. That doesn't mean the husband needs to know everything about the scripture. Listen, this has nothing to do about intellect or greater knowledge that a husband has. That's bogus. Listen, we, you're gonna sit down with your wife and she's gonna teach you probably a lot about the word, okay? 
But this is the thing. Who's going to initiate it? God wants the man to initiate it. Okay? It's okay if, if the woman does too, but I'm just saying this is what it means to be a leader of that marriage in the, the family. The husband wants, the husbands, do your wife ever see you enjoy the Lord? Like, I love the Lord. I love Jesus. I love going out to, you know, Deception Pass and the mountains. And, man, our God made this. How awesome is this? That we have a friendship with this God. Is your wife and your kids seeing you model that kind of talk? Um, are you enjoying the grace of God together? Uh, husbands, are you sharing in the life and the church of the church together? I know it's kind of a weird time because of COVID, but what does that look like? Because think about this. If Christ loved the bride so much that he died for her, and we're supposed to model that for our wives, it also means, boy, we should sure by the grace of God pray for a greater appreciation for the bride of Christ, the local church, the, and the universal church. It's got all sorts of flaws, we know that. It's not our savior. But it's a beautiful, it's his beautiful bride that he is transforming and sanctifying and that he's married himself to and will be with forever. And, and so let's consider the, the, let's exalt, I guess, you know, in a healthy way or uplift the value of church. Not just going to church, but being part of it through Christ. Um, and then we read that, you know, <clears throat> Christ went to extreme lengths to encourage his bride and to demonstrate how much he loved her, to show her. So husbands, does your wife know how much you love her? Does your wife hear with your words how much you love her? Does she see with your actions that you'll gladly give up all you have to serve her? You're not gonna do it perfectly. I'm not gonna do it perfectly. The only one who's perfect is God. However, we can grow in this and God's spirit can help us love our wives the way he wants us to. Does your wife know that her happiness and her joy in the Lord is extremely important to you? That you're willing to miss a night with the guys or miss a football game or miss a fishing trip so that your wife can go do a retreat with the women or go to her Bible study? That's more important. Does she know that and are you showing that? It is, I'm telling you guys, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably preaching the choir, but I'm just saying, that it's the truth. The health, the spiritual health of your wife is more important than watching a football game, okay? Um, or you going down to the river and fishing, okay? Which I love to do, but I don't want that to get in the wrong priority of things, right? Just like Christ, husbands must go to extreme lengths to encourage their brides and to show them how much they love them. And listen here, husbands, by loving your wife, by serving her, by encourage her, or encouraging her, by protecting her, you will, what the passage says is, you will actually be loving yourself because you're one flesh with your wife and her joy will then result in more joy for you. So he says here in verses 28 to 30, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
So this means husbands, we gotta make it a priority to nourish our wives, to cherish our wives just as Christ nourishes us and cherishes us and shows us much grace. This is the way to maximum joy for our wives and for us and for our families in marriage which will overflow and have an impact on society. And this is exactly the type of man that, that Jesus is, okay? He's a man who nourishes and cherishes his bride. And when husbands seek to love their wives this way, the way that Christ loves a church, it will not be a burden for wives to submit to their husbands, okay? It will not be difficult for women to respect their husbands because a self-sacrificing, wife-serving, God-honoring, gentle husband is exactly the type of man that every godly woman wants. And it's exactly the type of man that Jesus is. And that brings us to Paul's third teaching here about marriage in the passage. Paul connects marriage to Christ and to the church. He connects marriage to Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, 31 to 32 says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So when a husband and wife emotionally, relationally, not sorry, emotionally, but relationally detach from their dependence upon their parents and attach to one another by becoming one flesh, they're doing something much more significant than they probably realize and much more significant than this culture says. They're not just getting hitched. They're not just consummating their marriage. They are actually depicting to the world and to the cosmos the covenant union of Christ to his church. That's massive. The Institute of Marriage is not something to be taken lightly. And the Bible begins with a groom and a bride, Adam and Eve, and the Bible ends with a groom and a bride, Jesus and his church. The purpose of that first marriage in Genesis and the purpose of every marriage after that was ultimately to point us to God's matchless and ending love for his people. Think about that. Marriage points us to God's unwavering faithfulness, to his marriage covenant to us through Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And so the most intimate relationships that two, uh, relationship that two human beings can have, marriage, the most crucial relationship upon which all human society is built was created by the Lord to speak of his unending love for us. Isn't that amazing? So what we want to think of every time we're at a wedding this is amazing. This is reflecting God's covenant love, his covenant sacrifice for his people. Now, if you're here today and, and you have not submitted yourself first to the Lord, if you haven't turned away from sin, if you haven't submitted to this God who loves you so much that he died for you, then he tells you today, trust in him and turn to you. Excuse me, turn to him, <laughs> 
He wants you to read his word. He wants you to learn how to, how to live the way that he designed you to live for maximum joy and for the honor of his name because he loves you. He wants good for you, not bad for you. And for those of us here who are married or who would like to be married someday, let's pray for the spirit to fill us <laughs> so that we humbly submit ourselves to the Lord and to this design which he created for us, which he called very good. Let's ask the Lord to give us humble hearts. We all need them. To repent for our sin, uh, from, from, from our sinful inf- inclinations to either fight against the role he's given us or to neglect the role he's given us. Help us to repent from that, God. Help us to embrace these very good roles that you created for us and help us to follow you as we do that. And... And whether we've been married or we're divorced or widowed or we're single, all of us, let's all of us ask the Lord to help us humbly submit to one another out of reverence for him. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us because uh, we certainly have not earned it. Um, But we thank you that you're a God of grace and mercy who loves your bride so much that without flinching, you laid down your life to rescue us from the curse of sin. Not only eternally, but to free us from our sinful inclinations to act sinfully in a way that disrespects you and disrespects wives and husbands and families and society. And so, Lord, as we read passages like this, help us just to have a... a, a humble mindset, a, um, help us to, I guess, be sober-minded about these things. We can't do these things without your help. Uh, so much of this is foreign to us. Our world is so messed up with warped um, manifestations of, of how marriage ought not to be and we have been partakers in those warped manifestations. We thank you for being a forgiving God, a God of second chances. We thank you for being a God who does not leave us alone, but who says, hey, I'm with you. I'm for you. I'm gonna help you. And when you mess up, my grace uh, has not uh, even come close to, to being spent for you. Thank you, God, for being for us. Help us, Lord, to use whatever position we have in this society and in family and marriage, whatever, just to serve others, to be like you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thank you so much. So good to see you guys. Thank you for joining us online. Hope you have a wonderful day and uh, we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks.